God bless and welcome to this week's episode of Family Discussion. We are so glad that you've joined us today. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Jesus teaches us in the Gospel of John that the world will know that we are his followers by the way that we love one another. And yet it seems like the love of Jesus is less and less evident in the way that we speak to and about one another, especially when we disagree. So, in the hopes of recapturing the brother-sister love that Jesus has won for us, we are calling a family meeting. For the next half hour, let's cut through the noise and look at the issues without slander and malice. It's time for a family discussion. God bless and welcome to another episode of Family Discussion. My name is Marcus Ortega, and as always, I am joined by the illustrious Lisa Spencer. Lisa, how are you? Illustrious. That almost sounds like a um, uh, a really uh, a fancy word for saying, you know what? She's a little bit fancy. She's a little bit over the top. <laughs> no, no, I'm no. not sure if that's what you meant, but... <laughs> no, no. I'm thinking of the... I am thinking of the the academic theological and christian uh, weight that you bring to the conversation oh, you are the sweet. illustrious lisa spencer <laughs> Thank so you. lisa how are you i'm doing good yeah doing you just good. life in virginia is treating you well it's it's going okay um yeah just going okay all right, all right. So I watched the Golden Globes last night. I'll tell people where we're at. Um, first off, I hope the Academy was watching because if the Oscars are that poorly produced, it's going to be a problem. But I felt bad because it's the first like major award show done via Zoom. <laughs> no, actually. No, it's no, not. No, the Emmys. And, the oh, em- and right. I actually thought... Emmys did a lot better job. They did a lot better job yeah. than what, I don't know what was going on with the Golden Globes. And then there was a number of technical issues. Like, y'all should have worked that out. It was rough. It was rough. But it, a good time. It's, it's for me, uh, I feel like it's the beginning of award season now that the Golden Globes have officially happened. Um, I'm looking forward to very much the Oscars that got pushed all the way to April. I am a huge movie fan, so that's the uh, that's the one I look forward to. I pregame that thing like it's the Super Bowl, so I'm gonna I'm gonna have my snacks laid out and uh, I'm gonna have my ballot ready to go to see if I agree or disagree. I'm that level of nerd. <laughs> uh, okay, I bring up the movies not just because I love the movies, but because we're talking about story today, a okay. word that is maybe misunderstood or abused in theological conversation we hear a lot about story and it's kind of discussed in a somewhat squishy maybe is the word like a squishy way what is your story what is god's story for your life that kind of thing we are in the middle of a conversation about special and general revelation We've talked a lot about general revelation. Now we're kind of really pushing in for these next couple of weeks into the arena of special revelation. And the question we're asking today is what is the primary story of scripture? Scripture is a unified whole. It is not 66 disjointed books, but it is a unified whole. Old and New Testament go together 
Can't have the new without the old. Can't have the old without the new. So, there is one story that is there, but actually, there's quite a few stories that are getting woven from Genesis to Revelation. Mm-hmm. And which story we tend to emphasize might indicate which direction we lean on the social issues of the day. Uh, so, Lisa, when were you first introduced to this idea of like a unified whole of the story of Scripture? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've mentioned this in past episodes, kind of my my theological evolution, if you will. Don't get freaked out by the fact that I use the word evolution, please. Um, understand the context of which I am talking about. Um, Just trying to get in trouble. You know, I, because I did for many years in my Christian life, you know, and I was, um, you know, in non-denominational, Pentecostal, charismatic um uh, influenced um, churches that I, you know, I cherry picked. I read the Bible like from day one. Nobody had to tell me to read the Bible. What I didn't know, and what I had, would later come to understand many years later, is how the sixty-six pieces fit together. And so I don't like what a lot of people do. You know, you're in whatever teaching is influencing you. And if they're cherry picking and, you know, and imposing interpretations on particular passages or verses of scripture, then that's what you tend to go with. And so in 2006, um, somebody challenged me on how I was reading scripture. I mean, and even something simple as just reading something in context. Um, And so when I started doing that, um, not only did some of the heterodox uh, theology that I was holding on to start unraveling, but it also made me more aware of the connectedness of these 66 books, that it wasn't just let's go and see what God is doing here and doing here and doing here and how we can emulate that, but what is he doing from Genesis to Revelation. Now, that wasn't an overnight thing. It was a process. And I've been, we have this conversation before we started recording. And I'm just going to say this for our listeners out there. When you're engaging with theology, it is a process. You, it, you know, those light bulbs go, go on, but it, we're asking questions about what do these 66 books communicate? And I would say it is a lifelong journey. Um, And so, you know, for me, it was, you know, pieces over time, the pieces started coming together. Um, And that's why, you know, after 2006, so the first six years, I went through a period of, you know, gelling those pieces uh, together. But I still read it, you know, this question of what's the continuity versus discontinuity. And it was, as I was asking questions about the discontinuity um, and the holes, and I'm not, you know, I went, I went to Dallas Seminary, so I'm not, you know, this is no, um, no slight on, on DTS. It's a, a good school. I had excellent professors. But I started having questions about dispensationalism, about the discontinuity. Um, and that's what really led me to covenant theology because I see covenant theology as really, um, you know, really representing, in my better representing the cohesiveness of the 66 books and what God is doing from Genesis to Revelation. 
Yeah, I think my story is similar in this regard. It, seminary did a number on me and helped me really think these things through. I come from a dispensational background as well. And uh, I mean, my undergrad, the institution I went to was founded by Tim LaHaye. So that gives you an idea of just how dispensational things were, right? And by the time I got to Westminster, um, it's very in vogue right now to talk about deconstruction. I had effectively totally deconstructed my theology. I still love Jesus. I think that's something that, this is an aside, in the deconstruction conversations happening right now, um, you deconstruct your theology to get closer to Christ, not to run away from him. Um, I had deconstructed my theology because I felt like it was not biblical. Um, and I, I found Reformed theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, which showed me just how much more deconstructing needed to be done. Um, and, and then it, it, de- it helped me deconstruct my theology and then put back together a true biblical and systematic theology, a, a true reading of Scripture that ties everything together and shows that there are threads that run from Genesis 1 until Revelation 22. And I think because of our shared background in dispensationalism, Lisa, those those threads are obscured by the theological grid that dispensationalism puts on the scriptures. And I think the reason I fell in love with Reformed theology the way I did is because I could see now how the whole Bible works together. It's, it's really a beautiful thing. And there are a handful of, of, of stories, if you will, that go from beginning to end. Uh, Lisa, you were sharing with me, and, and on Twitter, you, you extolled the virtues of John Frame's systematic theology uh, as, as leading you to worship, as all good theology should. Um, Lisa, what, what are you seeing in these opening sections of Frame that help you understand the question of story? Um, you know, he sets the tone of, you know, first he, the first chapter of the systematic theology is titled, What is Theology? And, you know, so he dis- dispels this notion that the theology is supposed to be left in, in this realm of academics. Actually, he has some criticism about that because ultimately our our theology is asking the asking and answering the questions about what scripture communicates and it's for the purpose of edification um and so that right there to me i mean that just sets the tone uh for the rest of his work um and so you know in in looking at at scripture and of course he you know he goes into the different components of theology so you have biblical theology um systematic theology which is what we're what we're dealing with um and he even alludes to the fact that even within systematic theology and you're looking at these specific categories you, you still can't divorce it from the story and from that overall purpose of answering questions for the purpose of edification. Uh, it really is probably one of the best introductory chapters that I've read um, in a systematic theology book. That's awesome. Now, in this, and I have a systematic, uh, I got it when it first came out and have not read it all the way through. I, I kind of read those first couple introductory chapters and then I think I actually got it while I was in seminary, so there was just mm-hmm. no way I was going to be able to right. spend much time with it. Um, but uh, 
he also gets into and he uses something called tri perspectivalism which is a thing that he and Vern Poitras like to talk about um but he says that there are these primary categories of story that help us think through so what are the ones that frame uses oh gosh so you know i've actually read his book on perspectivalism um help me out here because so he has the normative well, he has the overarching yeah the normative one of normative of covenant, right uh situational and mm-hmm. existential and so yeah, the normative yeah, yeah. is what you know it, it's it's our propositional truth right it's what what has god done what has he communicated to us um and then the situational has more to do with the dynamics of how that interacts in history. The existential is how we perceive it. Um, because as we're talking about these, the questions of race and justice and looking at scripture, you, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a Christian that says, well, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not concerned with what the Bible says. Everybody is saying, I want to be biblical. I want to do what the Bible says, but and yet we're coming to these different, and in some cases radically different conclusions, and so that really raises. And I think that's where frames tri perspectivalism can be helpful because we do bring varying perspectives into the test. The normative is fixed; the normative doesn't change. How we interpret the situational, that's where we start getting into some differences and that can be even further um, developed because of our different perspectives which he ascribes to the existential category all right so now that we have all that groundwork laid uh the different things that we consider when we when we ask the simple question what is the story of the bible there's a lot of theological presupposition that goes into that um the biggest one being that there is a story that the Bible is telling from beginning to end. So Lisa, um, let's start with you and then I'll offer mine. What is kind of your primary lens, uh, story lens that you use when you come to the scriptures? And I'm going to default. Do it, default. It's good. Creation, fall, redemption. And actually I had a professor that added a fourth category, restoration. Yeah, consummation. Because that is what happens. uh Yep. At the end, Revelation 21, right? Amen. When what God intended in the first two chapters of Genesis, he said everything was good, right? What was his intention in creation? And that's consummated in, or, you know, restored at the very end. That fourth category is exactly how I was taught it at Westminster as well. It's with all creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Yeah. So tell us what that story is, in case people don't uh, don't know. What's the broad strokes of that story? (laughs) You know, God made everything good, and he made man for the purpose of reflecting his glory, right? We are image bearers of God. The fall happened and disrupted all of that. And from that time, God God made intentional steps, towards that consummative process, which he ultimately does through the Son. And so in the Old Testament, he lays out his relationship with his creation through covenants. You have, of course, in the Reformed tradition, we have the covenant of works, um, which, you know, was pre-fall, and, you know, and that had to do with God's 
relationship to his creation, what he what he expected. And then from the fall, you have the covenant of grace. And in that covers the, um, you know, covers the Abrahamic, the Noahic, the Mosaic, the and the Davidic covenant and this promise of a new covenant, which, of course, is what Christ inaugurates. Um, and we see that in the New Testament and all this for the purpose. One one passage of scripture that I think really undergirds um his movement towards his people is, is, you know, him saying, I will be, I will be your God and you will be my people. And it's not just, you know, God and his people, but God and his people as they interact with his creation. And to me, this is the beauty of the Mosaic covenant, the beauty of the law. You know, a lot of times we look at law and say, oh, yeah, that was that was the harsh, you know, that was a God, you know, giving rules and orders like, no, it was so his it was for the purpose of what he intended in his in his initial act of creation, that creation was supposed to glorify him. And so through those laws, it was his way of telling his people by doing this, you are reflecting my glory. And that was in contrast to what was going on in the other nations. Um, and so that to me, so when Christ comes and he says, and, you know, in, in five, in Matthew five seventeen, you know, I've not come to abolish the law, but, but to fulfill it, that he's taking everything that was meant to be accomplished through the law through God's promises uh, to David for an eternal kingdom um, that would be, you know, headed by a king, that he, he, it was meant that as, as people who are um, united in Christ, that we are now reflecting that. All that was intended through the Old Testament as Christians were saying, as people of God, we're bringing that same weight to bear in how we interact with God's creation by first and foremost, because we are united to Christ, because we have been redeemed and then God is going to redeem everything at the end. Now, you know, how much of that happens in the course of this life? I don't think it's fair to say, you know, is, is God going to transform society? No, you know, the fall impacted society, but as redeemed people, we can nudge towards the kingdom, right? Because what does it mean that we have eyes to see, eyes that are open to know, you know, and hearts that believe what God intended in his creation, but for to bring some kind of goodness into this earth until Christ comes back, he judges he restores uh, everything that God intended. Amen. I mean, that's the beauty of the gospel, right? Is that those of us who are fallen are redeemed in Christ through the, our union with Christ. And, uh, you know, that is a um, one of these central threads of the whole scripture. I was taught the same thing at Westminster. I think it's a very important uh, paradigm for us to understand how the Bible goes together because it gives us a... Um, it gives us a way to understand the Old Testament as always moving us towards Jesus. 
and not just as a bunch of stories that have good moral lessons to them, right? Um, so yeah, so that's that's really good. So my overall thing, uh, the perspective I bring, it, it includes the, the creation, fall, redemption, consummation motif. I see that as a central theme within the broader story of the kingdom of God. Um, from the beginning to the end, I see the scripture teaching us and telling the story of God who is creating a people for himself in a, uh, in a kingdom or in a space where we will glorify him forever. Um, I'm pulling some of this from uh, Meredith Klein and his work, Kingdom Prologue, which I, was really helpful for me when I was in seminary of understanding the, the uh, especially the opening chapter of Genesis. I was raised with a scientific read of Genesis 1, and what Klein does very helpfully is he says, this is actually a theological document, um, that the whole of the Bible is telling us about God, not about science. Uh, and it's not to say that science can now contradict the scriptures that's not what i'm saying but that the primary concern of the scriptures isn't to give us a blow-by-blow -blow scientific account of the creation of the world that in fact genesis 1 is a theological document that shows us god creating a realm and then somebody to rule that realm and so he calls this the framework read of genesis 1 um, and the reason he leans in here is he basically says this is programmatic now for the whole of the Bible, that there's the creation of a realm and the creation of someone to rule over that realm in God's stead. So there's the creation of the sky in day one, and then in day four, there's the creation of the sun and the moon to rule over the day and the night. Um, there's the creation of the seas. Now there's the creation of the animals as rules the sea. Then there's the creation of land. Now there's the creation of the, the animals and not just the animals to rule the land, but even a, an ultimate creation, humankind created to rule over the animals, the land, and, and reign as God's vice regent here on earth. Um, that idea of rule and reign that we run into in Genesis 1 carries through the entirety of the scriptures where God is establishing for himself a kingdom on earth as it is in heaven and a people to populate that kingdom. Unfortunately, the fall means that uh, redemption must occur for that larger program of kingdom to, to, to come to completion, uh, which is why the king himself, because we are not kings, we are at best uh, stand-ins for the king. <laughs> um, the, the king himself must come and redeem his people to establish and inaugurate his kingdom. Um, but I think this even impacts the way I read the gospel. Um, you know, when, when Jesus shows up on the scene in Mark chapter 1, the first thing that comes out of his mouth is, um, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And the gospel there, if you read, uh, if you're reading the ESV, there's this uh, in, in the commentary notes in the ESV study Bible. Uh, what they say here, I think is helpful. The gospel is the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning that God's rule over people's hearts and lives is now being established. And so being saved 
is central to that. Like you got to have the death and resurrection of Jesus for the gospel to exist. But the gospel actually encompasses a larger message that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so that story of kingdom helps me also think through like the laws. Why would God give laws to a people? Um, it's because he's establishing kingdom reign. Um, it helps also with the more icky parts of scripture. Um, you know, you go to Joshua and you see the people of God wiping folks out. Why would God ask the people of God to do this? It's to begin the work of clearing the realm that God's people will now rule over in a um, kind of like pre-eschatological way. There's a good 10-letter word for folks. Um, so I, I think that becomes the controlling story for me as I read the scriptures. It's about the king and his people. Um, the kingdom is is defined in bigger ways, in more clear ways. We're kingdom of priests, according to First uh, Peter. Um, we are a kingdom that is um, solely consistent of the family of God. And so the royal family are the only ones who get to live in the kingdom. And that's why we get to call God Father. Um, so all of these other, all these other stories and paradigms kind of fold in. And I see kingdom as the overarching one. A colleague of mine sees adoption and family as the overarching hmm. one. Uh, so there's these different interesting approaches to how we see the whole of the Bible telling uh, a cohesive story. Here becomes the follow-up question, and I want to ask this to you, Lisa, and then maybe give you half a second to think about it. Oh, <laughs> um, boy. After I just it, said, theology is a process, but good, that's okay. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, and you're, I, don't, I don't disagree. It's a process. Uh, I, but here's the theology is also for application. It's not Amen. just for, uh, for thinking in ivory towers, right? It impacts everyday right. life. And so when you think about the realm of ethics and the realm of how Christians are supposed to live, because now this bridges the gap towards these social justice, race, ethnicity type conversations, how does the meta narrative or the large story of scripture, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, how does that influence your approach to social justice type conversations? Well, it's asking the question, and I think it's a question that we all need to wrestle with on a continual basis, is what is what should be the Christian response to this? Um, I think a lot of what's happening, and especially with social media, is, you know, because there's a lot of virtue signaling going on, and people have, you know, formed these, you know, these more prominent perspectives of what, how one should think. We, it's something that we really need to wrestle with, I think. You know, don't get so settled into a camp that you can't hear the other person out. Um, so what does it mean? You know, we talk about ethics and this idea that God... Um, you know, that we are to operate in a way that reflects his goodness, that reflects his ethics, which means we should want what is right and what is fair and what is just in the world. Um, you know, that's not all going to happen um, ultimately until Christ comes back. But in the meantime, we can look to what is what is before us that we can impact 
right? So for instance, you're at a job and you see that there's partiality going on in terms of, you know, there's certain people that are treated differently than others. You know, what can I do as a Christian, right? Um, to know like this is, because we see that kind of injustice going on before us. Um, and, and it's not, well, you know, let's, let's jump on, you know, is it a, is it a race issue or, or, you know, these other kind of paradigms, but it's what is fair, what is right, what is just. Um, and so that's where I see, because again, God has always called his people to a different standard than to the world. And we see that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We are supposed to live as people who have been impacted by him. And that's going to change the way we're, we're, we're not going to operate according to the ethos of this world. Now, when you, when you approach these questions, you're, you're using the plural a lot, people, um, as you describe this. And, and I think there are some who would look at the creation, fall, redemption, consummation, and, and say, well, that is heavily about my personal salvation. Um, but you've also used the language of covenant a lot. And so when you think through this story of Scripture, what is the role of God's people as a people? How does that impact kind of your, your, your approach to Christian ethics and, and living in this world? Well, I go, I start with what Jesus said in John chapter 13 of how would the world know that we are his disciples? It is by the way that we love one another, which we have in every introduction to our episodes. <laughs> um, it, you know, if we don't start there, and, and I don't care what your position is on social justice. If we don't start there, who's listening? Who's Amen. listening to us? Because we're looking just like the world. Yep. Um, and, you know, so, and remind, and, and, and I just lost my thoughts. So remind well, me. Well, I'm just, you know, it, it's a question because I think in our context, we are so individualistic. And when we think yes. through creation, fall, redemption, we think of our fall and our personal redemption. Right. But you've been using a lot of plural language. So I was just asking about the yeah, relationship. And, that, and that's what we see in scripture. You know, we got God. Yes, he does call individuals and it is up to inter, an individual transformation. But we can see throughout, we're talking about threads throughout scripture. We can also see that it's how we interact together. And so it really has to start with the internal. How are we interacting together? And that's why, man, we just got to get a handle on how we're interacting with one another over these differences. Um, and, you know, when you see a brother and sister in Christ, like, understand that's like you're united to that person let's start there yeah um and so as a people it's how are how are we at interacting together but it's also influencing through you know we're, we're supposed to you know encourage one another while it is today encourage us to do what well we encourage us to set our affection on christ but i also think encourage us to how are we going to look out at God's creation 
and you know what what can we do as as a people and you know and that's where you know my hats off to the churches that you know look at like okay what's going on in our community um where where are the needs listen that's not a social gospel that's saying you know we living as redeemed people are 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 going to bring some goodness to those around us um and so there's you know i i've always hated the separation of word and deed like look ministry is both it's both word and deed the two interact together don't separate them amen that's a good word and and i think it's interesting because while we may emphasize um different aspects of the story in our thinking we end up in similar places you know one of the things that kingdom does for me when i think through ethics is it immediately places the christian in an exile type of a a standing in this world if we are a people of another kingdom then we operate as ambassadors as paul would say Um, our local churches then become embassies of another kingdom and we have to think through and try and figure out how we live in this strange land like if if i'm gonna totally steal a book title from archbishop charles chapu we are strangers in a strange land um how do we now live how do we bring the ethics of the kingdom and what we believe is right and wrong to bear around uh, the the external secular kingdoms that are around us the kingdoms of this world that becomes a really difficult question a really important one for us to ask but also, I think because of a kingdom, um, a kingdom story that overrides the majority, of the, or at least is the umbrella of the majority of my thinking here, how we live as God's people within this kingdom becomes very important. Um, there is a law that's still in place for the Christian. The abolishing of the law does not mean kind of a laissez-faire morality where anything goes. Um, but there is now the law of Christ, right? And we are to follow him and where our lives are to be more and more transformed in the image of the Son. This is what the Holy Spirit's doing in our lives. That's what sanctification is all about. And it's lived out within this otherworldly kingdom that is uh, merely a foreshadowing of that kingdom that is to come. And so... When we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it is not only future looking towards the day that Jesus will come in the fullness of his kingdom. It's also now. May his kingdom come now. Would we see evidence of his kingdom among us within the embassy, but also in the areas that the embassy touches you know, the, the reason we have embassies as a country is to uh, further the, uh, the interests of the United States in X country, right? That's what an embassy does. It's there for American interests to further our interest in that place. Kingdom embassies are for the same thing because kingdom interests end up being for the good of all of these other kingdoms around us. And so it, it's the way we live becomes very, very important, not in a workspace salvation, but in a, if you love me, you will follow my commandments type of way, is, is how Jesus would say. So, um, you know, I think the, the kingdom story really helps me get to uh, wrestling through social issues 
using these these boundaries of kingdom to help me not go too far, the world will never look like the kingdom of God because we are from an outside kingdom. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we can't run away from the place where God has placed us as ambassadors. We are supposed to see change uh, or at least advocate for the, the policies of the kingdom, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, and part of the where we see the disagreements is if you look at what the expectation for God's people were under the Old Testament in that cultural context, how that changes in the New Testament. And so you find folks who are looking at the New Testament and you're seeing an absence of, um, you know, this sort of speaking to the kingdoms of this world. It's, you know, how how do we, you know, interact together? Um, and there's less of, you know, inter- interacting with those other nations, um, if that if that makes sense. And I think that's where we, I, in other, I, I, I see that's where a big difference lies. So you have those who are more oriented towards social justice that look at the Old Testament. And, you know, and of course, the Old Testament is rife with, um, with God's um, requirement for justice. And in fact, the prophets spoke much of what was wrong with Israel in, in, the, in that they were demonstrating injustice to those that, you know, and to the vulnerable, primarily to the vulnerable, but they were not operating in a manner that was reflective of who God, you know, of what God established. Uh, but we really don't see much of that in the New Testament. And I think that that is a, a big difference where you see people looking at the New Testament and saying, wait a minute, we don't see any, we don't see Paul, you know, trying to advocate for policy, um, you know, under Nero's rule. We don't, you know, we just don't see what the prophets were addressing in the Old Testament. We don't really see much of that in the New Testament. And I think that's where a big difference lies. And I think we need to wrestle with that. You know, how does that, you know, understanding the different cultural contexts, how does that application in the Old Testament relate to the New Testament in relationship to how we should interact with culture today? I think you're absolutely right. It, it is an important and um, complicated conversation. I, I think one of the questions we have to ask is, I, I, I hear what you're saying and a lot of people who say we don't see these kinds of things in the New Testament. If the Bible, however, tells a cohesive story from old to new, then the New Testament is the continuation of what the Old Testament was teaching and and sharing as its story, right? Um there are changes as the story develops. Earlier parts of the story uh, become uh, shifted or transformed into the New Testament. So cleanliness codes, for example. Um, we are now made clean in Christ. We cannot call what is what, what God has declared clean to be unclean. That's what God tells Peter before he meets Cornelius. Um, you know, there, is a, there are changes that happen with the story. But it's still the same story. And so that becomes part of the wrestle is we are a New Testament people who are saved by the gospel. 
in a sense, there is a priority given to the New Testament over the Old, but we ought to be very careful that we not pit sections of Scripture against one another to say, well, if Paul didn't talk about it, therefore it's not a big deal. Or if Jesus didn't talk about it, therefore it's not a big deal, right? This also often happens, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, only well, Paul I, did. Actually, he did in Matthew well, 19, yeah, but that's another episode for another but that day. Becomes, like, but that becomes a, a regular um, response, right? We elevate one section of scripture over the elevate the gospels over the rest of the new testament and the old we elevate the prophets and they become the controlling thing for everybody or in our corner of the world and, and richard gaffin in his book um the centrality of the resurrection he says early on that the reformed tradition is really a tradition built around paul and he's not apologizing for it um and i wonder if that's a little bit of where we can get into some trouble is that we so elevate the writings of Paul that we negate some of the writings of the prophets as if they no longer carry weight. But if the New Testament does not transform or shift what happens in the Old Testament, then what happens in the Old Testament remains. And that becomes part of the, that's part of the challenge. That's part of the struggle of trying to figure all of this out. So, so here's, here's why this was an important episode for folks so that you understand why we're bringing this to you. If you don't have a, a full picture of the story of Scripture, it becomes very easy to cherry-pick your verses to support your causes. But if you understand that the Scriptures are telling a story, and they're a story in which you are a minor player, it is the story of God, of Christ, and His people, but, and His people is the secondary piece of that. It is about God. If you don't have that story in mind, it becomes very easy to twist the Scriptures into whatever shape you want them to be. Um, and we see that a lot when it comes to social justice conversations. Um, and I'll, I'll even, I, I don't use this phrase a lot because it's been abused, but you see it on both sides. And so we want to be careful that we have a controlling understanding of Scripture that leads us into these conversations and not allow the secular or worldly conversation to transform our understanding of the Scriptures. Right, exactly. Amen. Lisa, do you have anything else for us before we go? We've kept these folks for a while now. <laughs> no, but I will say, you know, one one book that has been very instrumental for me in terms of how I see the the cohesiveness of of the sixty six books is a book titled "Far as the Curse Is Found: The Covenant Story of Redemption." Uh, it was written by Michael D. Williams, who is a professor at Covenant Seminary and for me it just really it just really brings to life what that whole story is about and and in such a way that it really forces you to ask those questions about you know what am, am I cherry picking something here um, you know am I allowing some other influence to hit me to put me in a direction that maybe I shouldn't be going whether it's you know full-on social justice and riding the ways of what's going on in the secular uh you know in our secular culture or being so opposed to addressing social issues because we don't want 
to, you know, water down or um, distort the gospel in any way. And, you know, and really being close fisted when God wants us to, ha to have open hands. Um, so anyways, it's, I, I just highly recommend that book. Thank you for that recommendation, Lisa. And, and that's a great way to end this. I, I hope that this has been a helpful episode for people. And we're going to stick with the special revelation conversation for the next couple of weeks. There's other aspects to uh, our understanding of the Bible that are important as we have social justice conversations. Uh, so thank you for being with us today. We look forward to seeing you again next week on another episode of Family Discussion. Well, thank you again for joining us for this week's Family Discussion. If you'd like to learn more or catch up on episodes you missed, head on over to our home at reformedmargins.com. There you'll find great content about a whole host of issues that we pray will bless your relationship with Jesus, including articles written by Lisa Spencer and me, Marcos Ortega. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Your hosts are Marcos Ortega and Lisa Spencer. Our producer is Larry Lynn. Family Discussion is hosted by Podbean and recorded with Audacity. If you like what you heard today, it would be a great help to us if you gave a quick review and rating on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite content so that you don't miss our next Family Discussion.